few years back, I was sitting with a friend of mine, um, and he was sharing a story while he was in pastoral ministry of a church that he was a part of that split. Now, with my academic brain on, there's no shortage of Christian history of cases, heresies, dogma, doctrine that have caused people to divide. But in a current context, in a vocational ministry context, this was absolutely the first time that I have ever, I had ever heard of or experienced or heard the story of a good friend of mine who was right in the throes of a church that decided corporately, the body of Christ that decided we will no longer be the body of Christ together. There are these pervasive issues. There's a root cause and issue here that is causing us to say, we do not want to be together anymore. What once was unified is now split. And it started like any good church split does over, and I kid you not, uh, cookies, the wrong cookies served at a potluck lunch over a Sunday gathering. Now, obviously, um, it sounds silly, but this is the danger of religion that majors on the minors right? If you look through Christian history, relational Christian history, it usually doesn't start with a big, huge issue. It starts with something small and then divides and divides and divides and divides until it becomes something quite large, quite catastrophic, uh, and quite brutal. Um, And at the end of my brother's conversation, I was like, so what's like, what is the plan? What's happening? He's like, I don't know. I, the way I understand it, these two groups in our church want to become their own churches. And then I had the opportunity to follow back up with him not too, too long ago. Uh, and guess how many of those two churches exist today? Zero. So what is it about religion that weighs people down, that causes us to divide, that gets in the way of relationship with God? What is it about just blind religious observance that pollutes the voice of the spirit? Or as Blaise Pascal once put it, what is it that, uh, how is it that religion, that men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction? How, my friends, does this continue to happen in the church and why? And this certainly would have been the case and the weight, the heaviness, the burden that the church in Acts under the the leadership of the apostles would have been feeling certainly coming into the book um, uh, to the to chapter fifteen. So I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter fifteen, verses one to twenty nine. For the sake of time and our gathering here, um, we're just going to go to verse twenty one. But um, wherever you're tuning in from, please like. Um, We've said it before, we would love for us as a collective spiritual family to be reading through or pre-reading through all of the texts that we're um, going to be trucking through in this series. And so if this is your first time handling a Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, um, read through it, take a look, highlight it, mark up your Bible. The Bible is, is, is a living, breathing text that points us to the living, breathing word who is Jesus that's manifest by the living spirit that dwells within us. That's the mini sermon. That one's free. So um, I'm also going to make mention that I'm not going to cover uh, chapter 16. Uh, I will invite you to the Common Room podcast. We've mentioned before we have a, a podcast that in its first iteration, first season was like 
long-form conversation attached to kind of our Anabaptist vision and values. And now for season two, we're tethering a little closer, a little um, uh, tighter into the teaching and answering some of those questions that we've had. So the common room season two called Wait a Hot Minute. And we will get to, uh, in the next episode, chapter 16. But like I said, for our, our, our gathering uh, and study today, we're just going to go chapter 15, um, of verses 1 to 21. I'll also make mention, if you're not part of a home church, whether online, here, or at one of our sites, this is the time. We're talking about church unity, how the church is formed, what spiritual friendships and covenant looks like. And so if you are visiting for the first time, grace and peace to you. Take it in, ask questions. Hopefully you can find somebody in the room that you're in and ask those questions or at least like go up for coffee or something. But if you are like in, you know, you've been attending the meeting house for a while uh, and you're still struggling to get connected, home church is one of those primary vehicles where the, the monologue turns into dialogue. And so ask your lead pastor or one of your elders there at one of your, uh, at your site, or you can go to themeetinghouse.com slash home church. Okay. Acts 15. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, you remember Antioch is uh, the city where in um, just a few chapters earlier, this, this Gentile revival by the work of the Spirit takes place. And Luke records that it's not just the church that's converted, it's the whole city. Literally the gospel of grace by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, takes over the whole city. That's Antioch. So while Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas the great encourager, traveling companion of Paul, gospel missionary with Paul, Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria. Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Now, some translations um, posit that some Jewish believers uh, arrived from Judea and began to teach the Gentile believers. So there already is a little bit of a fracture and a divide that Luke is positing here in the writing of chapter 15. We're only two verses in. They said, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently or, or um, uh, exacting sharp dispute, I read in one translation, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem. They stopped along the way, like you do in Phoenicia and Samaria, to visit the believers. Pay attention there. Those two locations, Phoenicia and Samaria. The ends of the earth the gospel is going to. Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers and they told them much to everyone's joy, the Gentiles too were being converted. So even with this harsh news of like, here are the rules that are still manifest, you have to pay attention to. Paul and Barnabas moving towards Jerusalem to sort out like what is happening here, visit some unknown churches, Gentile, Greek influenced churches along the way to encourage them and all sorts of Gentiles are being converted because nothing gets in the way of this gospel of grace. When they arrived in Jerusalem, which by the way, was not a short trip from Antioch to Jerusalem, about 600 to 700 kilometers. So this is like, yeah, not a Sunday drive. This is a long, long journey. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church or ecclesia, the gathering, the body of the gathering of Christ, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then 
Some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted. Paul also belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, this religious tradition that said, you have to memorize, know the word, and follow it. This will lead to your salvation. Some of the members of the sect of of, uh, the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So, The apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. And here's what he said. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news or the gospel and believe. And God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he does accept the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he cleansed their hearts through faith, not work, through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentiles or laying a heavy yoke on the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were ever able to bear? So fascinating, so fascinating. Just the transparency, vulnerability, and truthfulness of these early apostles. We believe that we are all saved by the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs, wonders, and evidence God had done through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James, the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, witness, eyewitness to the early church movement. James, the brother of Jesus, alongside Simon, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. These are the heavyweights of the church, the heavyweights of the church that could possess religious power. James, the brother of Jesus stands up and said, brothers, listen to me, Peter or Simeon, uh, his, uh, the Greek translation of his word in um, some translations, Peter has told you about the, uh, about the time God uh, first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. This is out of the book of Amos. Afterward, book of Amos says, I will return and restore the fallen house of David or Israel. I will rebuild its ruins and then restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those that I have called mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. And so, James says, my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Okay, there is so much here that can seem confusing, but is so beautifully pointing to a church that is sets on love, unification, on, on clarity. What is it that we believe and hold to be true? And how will we do this together? Okay, so what's led to this point? It's really interesting. This is my scripture, scripture sandwich for us tonight. Um, so Acts 14, 15, and 16. We're gonna spend the, the body of our time together in chapter 15, but the, the two pieces of bread on either side are really interesting because they're the setup and the result of what's happened in 15. So in Acts chapter 14, if you remember from last week, um, the Paul is pointing towards Jesus as the new way, the new path, the new reality for Gentile believers. Uh, and the, the strange ebb and flow of Acts is like we've said before, grace and joy and conversion, and then desperate suffering, persecution, uh, abuse, trauma that the earliest disciples in particular, Paul, 
um, experiences. So the tail end of chapter 14, Paul is in the region of Lyconia in the city of Lystra. Him and Barnabas are teaching and preaching, and they're teaching to a very um, religious mindset, pagan religious mindset, indeed, that the gods are somewhere else, but every once in a while, the gods visit. They take on flesh in order to teach, convince, rebuke, war with, fight, and proclaim their dominance over the known world. And so Paul and Barnabas go and teach, likely in a synagogue or in a, in a temple construct. Um, and do you remember what happens? They, they teach so well that the crowds that are gathered say, these men are gods. These men are gods. Hermes and Zeus smoke likely. So, oh my goodness, like they bow before them. And Paul and Barnabas take no worship for themselves. In fact, they're like, they rebuke them. They say, no, get up, get up, get up. Like, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. Like the worship is for God alone. We're mere men, mortals like you, but we're pointing the way to Jesus. Beautiful, amazing. This is like the tail end of Acts chapter 14. And then the religious mind stirs up again because at the very end of Acts chapter 14, what happens? The, the religious leaders at the, at the time stir up the crowds that not only are these men not gods, but they're insisting on false doctrine that will interrupt their way of being, their way of life in the ancient world. And then by the end of chapter 14, Paul is arrested. He's taken out. So this is a Roman citizen. This is a Roman citizen and a, a former religious leader in the Pharisaical sect. They take him outside the city and they stone him. Now, stoning was not just like a slap on the wrist or a flog. They've been flogged before as well, as has Peter, as has James and John. This is supposed to be the end of Paul's life. They take him out outside the city. They're like, we're done with you. You have nothing left to say. God's judgment is on you as is ours. You're dead, dude. Uh, but he doesn't die. And the text doesn't indicate if this is a miracle. It just says that like he, uh, he finds his breath again. He, he rises back up. And there's a group of disciples that are unnamed, um, likely you know Gentile converts there as well, who rally around, care for Paul. And then what does he do? He goes to somebody's home and anoints his you know, wounds with, with oil and takes care of himself. No, Paul. Paul goes right back to the city and continues to preach the end of chapter 14. He goes right back into the city and is like, this, but what is my life worth unless I use it to do the good work that God has anointed me to do, which is the good news of grace, the gospel of grace of Jesus for the Gentiles, Acts chapter 20, which we'll get to in a few years. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas continue onward to get the gospel, which is the saving knowledge of the grace of the Lordship of Jesus to the furthest regions of the ancient world. And so then here, as Acts chapter 15 opens, we arrive back in Antioch. Now, if you remember uh, a little while ago, Paul and Barnabas planted this church. It, it just blows up in a good way, in a good way. It blows up uh, tons of Gentile converts, signs, miracles, people are receiving the good news of Jesus and the whole city is converted to this new way, this new thing that is happening, this first and largest fully Gentile church. And what is happening? Well, um, these people are invited into a yoke, um, a new way of being, away from the religious yoke of, of heaviness, of burdensome, of rules and regulations and religious ritual that like barely anybody has kept anyway, enter the sacrificial system to atone for the ways that you sin and can't keep Mosaic law. Uh, the burden or yoke of religion and religious people is being laid heavy on people who are new to faith and trying to follow Jesus. Chapter 14. 
Skipping ahead to chapter 16, it's interesting the movement that happens here. At first, the gospel is now traveling um, geographically, right? So it started in Jerusalem and then through all of the navigation of Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 11, and 12, it's starting to go out to the known world because this is the great commission that Jesus said, you, you will take this, you will do this work. It will reach the furthest ends of the known world, even Samaria. So pay attention to the part that you have to play. Now in chapter 16, we see that not only is the gospel moving geographically, but generationally and now sociologically. Paul affirms and empowers and anoints a young man named, anybody guess? Timothy. Timothy. Now this is fascinating. Again, a beautiful shift in generational leadership. Most often a rabbi, teacher, religious leader um, was anointed or appointed to lead a congregation, a synagogue, or a rabbinic stream at the age of 30, right? And that was the age of spiritual maturity. And here we see Paul, who is steeped in this religious tradition, anointing somebody who, Timothy, who is most likely, we're not told specifically, a teenager, a teenager or a young adult, and says, Brother, brother, you will be appointed for ministry. You will be the one who pastors, shepherds, ministerias to these churches of Gentile converts, you being a Greek yourself. Um, in 1 Timothy 4, he'll write a letter to Timothy saying, dude, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Instead, set an example for the believers that you're giving care to. to and, and the way that you conduct your life and your speech and your life and your faith, your righteousness, your ministry, you have been appointed to do this. And then fascinatingly, and this is all the time that we'll take, the first step for Timothy, Timothy's anointing for ministry is circumcision. Day one as an intern, circumcision. <laughs> It's so awkward. Can you imagine showing up to work that? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So Acts, Acts 15, this, that's, the, that's the scripture sandwich. 14, torture, almost death. And Paul's like, I don't care. This is what I signed up for. The gospel is too moving, too impactful for me to just like try and protect my own life. And the gospel is traveling all around the world. And the gospel is traveling generationally. It's making its way into even into the hearts and lives of young people. Okay, so now we're in the second, third movement, missionary journey of Paul, who's taking a circuitous, circuitous route from Jerusalem into the farthest reaches of the known Greek and Syrian world at the time. He wants to get out there. Um, so he and, and Barnabas head back to the church in Antioch. Now, meanwhile, while they're there, Paul has made a habit to go back to the churches, encourage them, be like, ah, oh, I see your good deeds. Like you're doing so well. What do you need? Here's some correction, exhortation, rebuke, love. Paul is being a shepherd, pastor, leader to these people and is also leaving people in charge. Meanwhile, he gets back to this foundational, pivotal mega church that started this whole thing off. And what has he arrived to find out? There are some Jewish believers, they're unnamed um, until later, likely from the Pharisaical sect, which we'll get to in verse six, have crept their way or made their way into this Antiochian church, Greek pagan believers, and they are teaching them the necessity of essentially religious syncretism. And by that, I mean like, sure, we can acquiesce to maybe Jesus is the Messiah and savior, son of God of the world. But at the end of the day, it's super risky. So you must keep Mosaic law and your men must be circumcised. These men 
infiltrate the church with a religious mindset and teach them about the necessity of keeping Mosaic law. And there are about 600 and some of them and the necessity of the mark of circumcision. And Paul and Barnabas are trying to sort out like, where, where is this coming from? Again, this is like not the internet age. This is not even like the normal letter carrier age. Messages traveled back and forth through people, through purulators, through message carriers. And so Paul and Barnabas are assuming like, who, who, where, how did this get here? Like, has somebody from Jerusalem come and told you this? Because this is all new to us. We thought this was a different way, that this gospel of grace includes everybody with no restrictions, that there was an old covenant and now there is a new one. So what has happened? They are trying to sort out, I would contend, is this the work of the apostles? Has word from the apostles in the church in Jerusalem where this whole thing got started, that actually the spirit has changed its tune, that at the end of the day, sure, uh, you can follow Jesus in this path, but part of the path is Mosaic law, keeping all of the rules, regulations, and also circumcision. So which is it? Is it the old way that is a heavy yoke that none of our forefathers have kept, nor have we? Or is it a new way? Is this yoke a new way of grace? Now, the key things that need to be, the reasons, did you catch it? Why these rules need to be kept? What is it for? In order to obtain salvation. Think about how devastating that would be. This is not just an add-on of your pathology of religion. This is the thing that makes you in or out. This is the thing, the dividing line, the split that causes you to be accepted by God the Father or rejected by God the Father. Salvation meaning right standing with God and forgiveness, purity, cleansing, being in right appearance and connection with God means keeping all of the laws of Moses over 600, keeping the right and practice of physical circumcision, which is the evidence that you're set apart by God, the outward action of an inner reality. And in other words, the yoke is on you. You must follow religion, rule, and ritual in order to be saved. And that is what religion will always teach. The yoke is on you. Now, in Antioch, like I said, this Gentile megachurch, the yoke for the Gentiles is not just to like, okay, well, let's head back to the tradition of our fathers. Remember, this is a completely Gentile church. They have not grown up in the tradition of Mosaic law. Let that sit for a second. Not only is what they've uh, just heard and experienced now, you know, just kind of absconded with, but they need to go back and learn a culture, a religious framework that would be absolutely foreign, that would take so much time, and that good Jewish boys and girls learning Torah would be studying and immersed in basically from age three to age 11. And these poor Gentile converts are like, we're so, how would we even start? It would be like uh, taking a grade two student into like a third year university calculus class and be like, sink or swim, kid. How? You're setting me up for disaster already. This is the yoke of religion. Learn and keep Mosaic law, even though none of us actually have, hence the sacrificial system. Participate in and return to temple worship, sacrifice in the synagogue and temple, that the temple is still something that we need to hold on to, that synagogue gathering is something that we still need to hold on to, even though Jesus specifically and explicitly taught that, that the dwelling of the spirit will be in you because you are the temple. You are the dwelling place of God, God's spirit that's now evidenced in you. And then finally go through the rites of circumcision of the body. 
super weird, you know, not super foreign in the ancient world. But isn't that just such a harsh and strange reality for this God who is grace and inclusion to say there is something as a man that you need to do to and for your body to show that you're legit and all about this new life. Now, uh, in the ancient world, the, the moniker of circumcision, literally a cutting away of part of your most intimate self, uh, was a common concept and practice to show that you ascribe to a certain um, a pagan deity or in Jewish custom to show that this was like, it was part of the blood covenant that God used this practice in the very ancient world to say, okay, we'll adopt that, but eventually it will go away. We'll adopt that as a marker. It'll be part of the, the evidence of your covenant with me. But eventually Paul will coin this phrase as well. Um, circumcision will become a marker of the heart, not of the body, but of the heart of the spirit. And that baptism Water baptism, the immersion, will become the, the new circumcision, as it were. Grace by faith is what saves from sin and separation, not circumcision, not Mosaic law, not religious observance to the temple and sacrificial system. This is not the way that it's meant to be, and yet religion is like a cancer in the world. Religion will always put the heavy yoke on you. Religion will always put the heavy yoke on you. N.T. Wright in his volume, um, the, the New Testament in His World, uh, he, he's commenting, uh, he writes about the, the Jewish council, um, the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, as a critical decision point for the Gentile church uh, under the leadership of these formerly like Jewish uh, followers of Torah entering into this new life. This is what he writes. So God gave the Gentiles the same spirit he gave to Jewish believers, making no distinction. What mattered though, was the purification of the heart affected by divine grace. I love that so much. Paul and Barnabas then described the miraculous signs that God had performed through them among the Gentiles. And then finally, James, the brother of Jesus, expounded on Amos um, 9, 11 to 12, which we just read, which in the Greek version indicates that the Gentiles were always designed to participate in a restored future Israel always designed to be there. In other words, it is precisely because God had fulfilled his covenant with Israel in sending Jesus as the Messiah, that the covenant family was now thrown wide open to all without distinction. This is a huge deal for this church. I mean, this is the recipe for division if there ever was one. It's like, well, we've got a decision to make. Either we head into the own unknown, the kind of ellipsis of the spirit. We trust that these miracles have happened and there's this new way that frees up at the same time. Like we've kind of done it this way for so long. Like what if we get it wrong? What if we screw it up? What if this is all just a farce that has no like root? And yet it seems that the spirit is convincing them through miracles, through conversion, through indwelling, through tongues, through this manifest movement of the good news of the gospel, taking over cities, regions that were unreached and had no interest in being reached. Something is at work in the world. It seems that the spirit is at work alleviating the burden of religion. It seems that the work of the spirit is doing the work of alleviating the burden of religion and giving us a new way a new path, a new yoke. Matthew chapter 11.
Then Jesus said to them, Come to me, all you who are weary, and carry the heavy burden of religion, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. It seems that the Spirit is at work inviting Gentiles into the good news of the grace of the gospel through faith and alleviating, lifting the burden of religious, blind religious observation and rules that always puts a person down. Now, Jesus um, uses this phrase, yoke, which maybe we've heard before and maybe we haven't. Uh, And the apostles are coming back to it at the Jerusalem council here too, this yoke, this burden. Now there's conceptually, there's two realities here. Number one, this is a farming instrument. This is the yoke, um, the plow that was attached to um, the the shoulder blades, the, the torso of an animal in order to do the hard work. They know what they're there for. They signed up for it. And they're an aid in the process of cultivating this farmer's field. And so this is not a foreign uh, imagery or analogy that Jesus and other gospel writers and other prophets will use. It is the yoke that gets the work done. It's heavy, but it does good work. But then a yoke, a yoke for a religious person in the rabbinic tradition. This is like the way, the path, that it's it's the burden that you carry. That's the specificity of your particular synagogue leader, your particular sect, or your particular rabbi. And all of it was a bit of a split, a derivation of like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. There's a new way to practice this or or a different inflection of this, uh, this learning of Torah. Um, that, that you're meant to follow if you're going to follow me. And Jesus kind of blows this out of the water in Matthew chapter 11, which is both a wonderfully inviting, but like strangely religiously haunting section of scripture. He does not say there is no yoke. Did you notice that? It's not just that like, there's nothing that you need to do. Certainly Jesus has paid the once and for all self-sacrifice that, that separates the distance between us and God, invites fellowship into um, this, this divine relationship. However, there is something for you to do here on planet earth. It is easy and it is restful and it is grace oriented and it is light, but it is something. There is something for you to do. And this is the danger of the disease, even in contemporary religious idolatry, I would say, that says, well, uh, the fullness of your relationship with God is your ticket out of hell and into heaven. That's it. Let the world burn. Whatever happens around you, it does not matter. This is, this is an empty promise of religion that has nothing to do with following Jesus. We are to take on a yoke that is grace, that is light, that frees us up from the shackles of religion that weighs us down and moves us, though, into this new way of grace this orientation of our entire life that is always the way that it was meant to be, to be an unstoppable force of good in the world. So what is the change here then for these Gentile believers? Fascinating, really interesting here. So they have heard, okay, well, my goodness, there's one God uh, and there's one savior and it's Jesus and our relationship with him is grace. But then they've also been polluted by a sense of like ancient religiosity that says, well, actually, no, if at best you need to mix it up, but you need to keep these rules. Otherwise you're kind of screwed. Like your salvation rests on keeping these ideologies. So what is now the change for these Gentile believers that the Jerusalem council, these apostles have met to decide, verse six. So the apostles and elders or disciples met together to resolve the issue. 
not just talk about it, philosophize about it. They, they came to a purposeful decision to resolve the issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the gospel, the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he has confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them to the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith, not rules, not circumcision, not Mosaic law, not temple observance, not sacrifice, through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe, and here it is, that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So what's the change? Three things. Number one, follow Jesus, nothing else. Follow Jesus, nothing else. No idols, no other worship forms, no worship of other gods, no food for other gods, no food customs attributed to other gods. We follow Jesus by grace through faith. At the end of chapter 15, they will establish, and James will nuance, they'll send a letter back to, of things to abstain from. And these are not arbitrary. Um, it's not just the, the Jewish, the um, uh, the apostolic believers going back and saying, well, actually include, include these few things. Those four principles are all included for a reason. They are, they are the idolatrous practices that lead away from um, following Jesus. So don't worship other gods, don't have idols, don't um, eat food or have anything to do with foods offered to other gods, including blood or strangled animals. Don't be um, part of any food customs attributed to other gods. Follow Jesus by grace, grace through faith. So follow Jesus, nothing else. Number two, invite others, everyone else. Invite others, everyone else. We should not weigh people down and make grace and relationship with God something that's difficult to access or practice. This should be light and freeing. This is always how we were designed to be, to be in partnership, in relationship, intimacy, covenant with the divine. So it seems good to us and the spirit that being part of this way should lift burdens, not add them. And then number three, share the good news, the gospel, everywhere else. There's work to do. There's a way to do it. There's a yoke that we accept, that we put on our shoulders, and it is good and freeing, light, restful, and inclusive. So let's get to the work. Let's get going. Let's get to the work and help people hear, see, know, and follow. Let's major on the majors and hold the rest in loving tension and relationship with each other, committing to sort things out as brothers and sisters, family together. And then Peter and James's final instruction, let's not make this harder. Let's not make this harder. Let's not make this heavier. Let's not make this more burdensome or more difficult or more divisive for people who are far from God and need to experience the grace and goodness of a relationship with God. Amazing. This is a, a game changer in the life of the church. And an amazing exhortation, even a rebuke, an encouragement, whatever phase of life we, you, I am at thousands of years later. But... I wonder, my friends, if we were to talk to our family members, our coworkers, our friends, how would they describe Christianity? Heavy? 
burdensome? Tough to follow? I don't get it. Difficult to understand? Prone to divide and dispute with each other? This is not the church that we are meant to be a part of. I don't want to be part of a church like that, that majors on the minors, that is willing to start dividing over cookies at a potluck meal. My friends, may we be a church that exudes the spirit and heart and even risk of this Acts 15 decision of this early church. May we be a church, a spirit-led gathering that invites and even institutes a light yoke a grace-soaked way of being, of following Jesus and receiving his grace. And may we be a church that is for people, not against, not divided, not disputing. May we be a church that is for people who need to hear and experience the love and grace and inclusion and acceptance of Jesus and be a part of the radically transformative work of the Spirit. And so my brothers and sisters, I will leave us here um, and bless us with the benediction and encouragement of Paul later to an early Gentile church that is committed to figuring out this, um, this whole new way, this light yoke, this path of Jesus together. Here's what he says. May it bless you as it has me. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, me, us together with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit go with us and continue to go with us. And together we all said, amen. Amen.